Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We now look at monetary uh, ramifications off this jobs report in 29 minutes. Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Advisors, joins us. Julia, I look at the reaction functions available or predictable to the Fed. Do we understand them or are we flying as blind as maybe some think? I mean, I think it's pretty clear what the objective is for the Fed, and that is to keep the recovery going as long as it possibly can. And so I think that's why we're talking about, you know, interest rate cuts now. Um, the, the prescription when you're close to zero on interest rates is to move ahead of risks and not wait for, the, for them to fully materialize in the data. So we expect to see some job slowing today. Uh, we expect to see a slowing trend. We, we've seen the global economy slow uh, and it looks like okay. Fed's going to be taking out some insurance. I mean, but John, I'm asking you this question too because you've got to ask this a Cudlow because he's going to want a rate cut. What does a rate cut accomplish, John Farrell? Very, very unlikely that it will accomplish much, given how loose financial conditions already are. And Julian, we've asked the Federal Reserve Chair this question in the news conference. Tom Keane asked the Vice Chairman this question: mm-hmm. What will it do if they cut rates at the end of this month? Well, let's keep in mind that the expectation of rate cuts is one of the reasons financial conditions are so Very true. So in the face of all of the risks that markets have to look out at, they have this insurance from the Fed to cut rates. They've built that in, and that's kept financial conditions from going into a tightening cycle. And so that's, that's exactly how policy works. That's the transmission mechanism. So it's not like it's going to ease them more, but markets have already heard the Fed loud and clear that they're going to move, and that's one of the things that offsets some of the risks out there. So, Julia, essentially, we just need to validate market expectations, but beyond that, I fail to see how it helps. I mean, is the price of credit the problem in the United States right now? Most people would say no. Is the price of credit the problem in Europe right now? Most people would say no. Likewise in Japan. Where is the price of credit actually a problem? No, it's not really the price of credit, but it's short-circuiting the transmission of these risks through the confidence channel. And so it's not necessarily okay. – and, and that we see that in financial conditions. Okay, this so, is really, really important, and we're talking with Julia Coronado with really significant experience in thinking through the mathiness of all this over to the behavioralness of all this. The confidence channel – why don't they just cut rates this afternoon after an average or a shorter rate? That would be an immediate confidence boost, isn't it? Well, if, it, if they cut rates in between meetings, that looks like an emergency. That looks like panic. So yeah, that wouldn't necessarily that. boost confidence. But if they move methodically and say, look, we're yeah. seeing some slowing. We're going to address it. Don't worry. Keep doing what you're doing. And that's how you keep confidence on track. It's a very tricky game yeah. when we're in an uncertain period like this. But I think moving unexpectedly can actually hurt confidence. I, I can't so con- they try to set up expectations yeah. for easy policy. John, I can't convey how important this discussion is. The history of this, of successes and too many failures of guessing 
the future. This confidence issue is critical. Well, here's the line from the chairman. An ounce of protection is worth a pound of cure. At the moment, right. though, Julia, there seems to be, Mary Poppins, seems to be a disagreement. I think that's a different song. Oh, sorry. Julia, I think there seems to be a disagreement between what an ounce of protection actually is, uh, between the Federal Reserve and where the market is currently. The market's seeing an ounce of protection as 100 basis points of cuts over the next 12 right. months. Does that sound like an ounce of protection to you? <laughs> that sounds like a lot, uh, and I think that the Fed can afford to be more data-dependent. That They may have to deliver that much. It sort of depends on how much transmission we actually see to the real economy. So it's a little bit chicken and egg. You're, you're right about that. Um, and I think that the Fed can just stay on course, cut in July, see how the data flow in. If another cut is needed, then they'll do another cut, and, and, right. and on they go. What data uh, matters? If the data flows in after this ginormous jobs report in 14 minutes, 15 minutes, what data matters? Well, the jobs data are very important. Yeah, I know, but it's after the that. most comprehensive data yeah. that they see. Um, the trade development, business investment is one, ident- one thing that they have identified. As Where's that right key. now? Well, business investment has been sort of sluggish. It's not contracting. It's sort of flattened out after a very strong couple of years. So they're watching that. Um, other interest-sensitive sectors, cyclical sectors, housing. Um, and then, again, right now, the jobs report really is front and center because it's the resiliency of the domestic service sector that's key here that makes the difference between sort of a bumpy, soft landing to right. trend growth and a recession. Julia, this is critical. Service sector. You bring up probably the most important question for a lot of people at the moment, looking at the labour market. Manufacturing's really weak worldwide, yes. and we started to see that weakness materialise here in the United States as well. Whether it feeds into the service sector in a way that would produce a really big downturn beyond just returning to trend growth. Are you seeing any sign of that already, Julia? We haven't seen signs of uh, something that's terribly worrisome. We have seen some slowing in the service sector indicators with everything else. The ISM non-manufacturing index has come down off the highs, so has the hiring component of that index. It's not yet moving towards contractionary territory, though. So it looks okay. I think the resilience story still holds up. Um, But, again, the Fed's not going to take chances by waiting around Hopefully, they're going to yeah. stabilize that. Uh, and so that's what we're looking for in today's report and in the yeah. uh, July report that we'll get at the beginning of August to see how that domestic service sector holds up. For your uh, statistical uh, care folks, let's get a non-farm number from Dr. Coronado. Do you have a payrolls number off 160 survey? Yeah, I'm, I'm right around the survey. I'm at 165. So uh, it's down. Uh, it's a bounce back from yeah. May, but a slower trend. Okay. It's still plenty. Remember, our sort of break even is 100K. That's what we need to hold the unemployment rate steady. Uh, so anything above that is, is not bad. Okay. And so it, that would be a decent number, but it would be down from where we have been. Yeah, nicely framed. Carl Riccadon at, at 150 and. Uh, 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 Dr. Coronado at 165. And also, after careful surveillance research, Dr. Coronado likes mint chocolate chip. Mint chocolate chip. Yeah. What, is, what is it about yeah. ice cream with you today, Tom? It's, I, I, He's I, it's that time Julia. of year. It's that time of year.
We return to Jason Furman of Harvard University, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and, of course, at the Peterson Institute as well. Dr. Furman, what is the policy prescription right now for the two Americas we have? We have some kind of run rate of decent employment bouncing 72 up to 224, but a huge part of America seems disassociated from this fully employed America. What is your labor prescription? Yeah, I think you see it in the numbers um, this month. Year-over-year average hourly earnings up 3.1%. That's actually lower wage growth than what we had about six months ago when it was running at nearly 3.5% a year. I think the good news is that you know, means the Fed just doesn't need to be very worried about inflation, yet another reason they don't need to be. Um, the prescription for that is a hot economy and continued um, low unemployment rate. That hasn't been working as well as we'd like, so I think we need to try a bit more of it. Jason, one theme for this program over the last couple of hours is whether we're returning to trend growth of in and around 2% on GDP and maybe returning to more mature payrolls growth, something a little bit more conservative, away from 200,000 towards, say, 100K. Today's number makes that call a little bit more comp- complicated, Jason. What's your base case for that return to trend growth? Is that something you see slowly happening over time this year? Yeah, I see that happening slowly over time this year. I think that's exactly um, the right word. And, you know, I think historically right. the evidence this trend is more like 1.75%. Um, I don't think we'll fall that far this year, but I think that's where we're heading. And, you know, just look at the unemployment rate. It has, you know, right. basically, you know, is, is falling at a, at a lower rate than it was before. Um, so we're right. closing the gap more slowly than we were before. Jason Furman, John Farrell will speak with Lawrence Cudlow of the White House here uh, in a bit. He's going to spin a supply side message that things are good, debt is good, we can grow ourselves out of debt. What is the thing that Larry Cudlow gets most wrong? I think it's that the underlying trend growth of the economy is more like 1.752%. And that, you know, it's like a super tanker. It's not something that turns on a dime. It's not a new president yeah. elected and all of a sudden <clears throat> everyone changes their estimates um, of trend growth. And just, you know, look at job growth. Last year it was 225000 a month. This year it's about 170000 a month. It's probably going to come down from yeah. there. And absent <clears throat> faster productivity growth, um, we can't. You know, we're not going to be able to generate the 3% growth that the White well, House has talked about. This is really important, and it speaks to the tensions evident, certainly over the last 48 hours in America, a polarized America. David Blanchflower made very clear that the one way to jumpstart all this is immigration, and then that there's all these jobs that are skilled jobs that are unwanted, and a growing population would help that. How do you study right now productivity and the body count of America. Can we get to a better labor America with a present population growth? We definitely um, have very unfavorable demography right now. And you know, you can either have more babies and wait 20 years or have more immigrants and they can work right away. Um, probably uh, you know, the latter is a little bit more feasible. I mean, the latter's a little more feasible, and that comes from 
a policy as well. You're an expert in policy prescription. I think you've been very fair uh, and indeed balanced in looking at those that are conservative and those are liberal as well. Into the 2020 election, how are we going to address the debate on productivity? I mean, this is hugely emotional in America. What is the best prescription besides the, the trope of, you know, everybody needs to be more educated? I get that. What's the immediate prescription? The problem is there's not one answer. There's a lot of different ingredients. Immigration actually doesn't just help with the labor force. It helps with productivity because you bring people in with yeah. a lot of skills and a lot to contribute to our economy. Um, I actually think we could do another round of business tax reform. Um, and in what way? Didn't, didn't they get enough last time? Well, I don't think we need to lower business taxes, but if you take steps like shifting to expensing, more favorable tax treatment of R&D, and if you do that, by the way, you can probably raise rates a, a bit and, and bring in some more revenue. You so sound like you're positively Johnsonian on this. Are you talking about true, I mean, I mean I'm going to use the phrase generally, but an investment tax credit to really spur domestic incentives to create jobs? Well, we have expensing in the law, but then it phases out over a five-year yeah. period. Um, I'd actually make that permanent, but then you need to do some other things to make that work, like bigger limits on interest deductibility and more, um, yeah. uh, you know, and, 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 and potentially a higher tax rate. But, mm-hmm. but I think focusing on innovation, I mean, you know, the R&D tax credit is something yeah. that the United States pioneered. We're now way behind most of the world on it. Um, we could expand that. Right. I, I, any day, folks, I expect Dr. Furman to start talking with a Texas accent as he goes all <laughs> 60s at LBJ. Jason Furman, as always, thank you for the uh, view on policy here off a really quite good uh, jobs report. Dr. Furman, of course, with the Peterson Institute and Harvard uh, University. Right now, a perfect guest, Michael Darter with us with MKM Advisors. And we see this, as Karen was mentioning, with real seismic change in the market and shift. Michael, what I would point out, and this is looking, folks, at four or five fancy charts which don't work on radio, we're about 60 or 70% back to where we were before rate cut certitude. With this good jobs report, do we eliminate or ameliorate or lessen rate cut certitude? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. I certainly hope not, because what you're dealing with here with payrolls is a coincident indicator, and the long leading indicators have been pointing down. Even with the backup in the 10-year yield today, you still have an inverted treasury yield curve that's been the case for over a month now. And so if we're going to take one piece of coincident data and have a parade about the Fed not easing policy, that yield curve inversion is more likely to persist and the business cycle is more likely to end in about a year's time. What is the leading indicators that matter to Michael Darda? Well, I like to look at the the yield curve. Um, It's frequently dismissed because it is such a long leading indicator with variation from cycle to cycle. So it's not uncommon to see other data that still looks fine for quite some time. 
Uh, I look at monetary growth. So we've had some intermittent negative readings in the inflation-adjusted M1 money stock year over year. That tends to happen when the curve pancakes. And then we can also look at credit markets and then some shorter-term leading indicators like jobless claims. And and those indicators still look okay. And, And so, you know, this is an economy that's not falling off a cliff. It is slowing but I think if the, the Fed is going to try to, quote, unquote, get tough and defy those July rate cut expectations, then we could be headed into well, troubled waters. This is so important. And, folks, I'm looking at the Bloomberg screen. Futures negative 12. They were negative five earlier. As Mr. Darda mentions, the yield 2.01%. Michael, I'm looking at the vanilla spread, the twos and the tens. You're expert at using the Bloomberg with spreads. I mean, all of a sudden, that vanilla curve was 24 and 25 and 26 basis points, 0.25 percentage points difference in yield between the 10-year and the two-year, and it flattens down to 17 basis points. Is that the kind of thing that would be the final straw for the Fed to see a point, a negative 0.01 basis points on twos, tens? Unfortunately, I don't think the Fed is actually paying that close of attention to the to the curve, whether it's tens to twos. I, I like to look at the 10-year relative to the bill rate or the policy rate. Most of the academic literature focuses yeah, I agree. on yield curve yeah. and biz, business cycles. Yeah, look at a, a rate that's more harnessed to the Fed's policy rate. So the two-year note yield has expectations of, of rate cuts in it, uh, multiple rate cuts, which is why that spread is still positive. But for the Fed's part, I think they're looking, you know, mostly at the macroeconomic data. They're looking at payrolls. They're looking at jobless claims. They're looking at the unemployment rate. And that's all well and good. But aside from claims, you're really looking at a set of coincident or even lagging indicators. And you've got the stock market up strongly. So you have some members of the Fed getting increasingly uncomfortable with the amount of rate cut expectations that that we have in the market so you could have a showdown here uh, going into the july meeting where the fed quote unquote tries to stand tough and i think that would be a serious and potentially catastrophic mistake for the business cycle but we get more data between now and that meeting i want to revisit again the kind of data that vice chairman clarida will be looking at with this set of phds i mean is it just retail sales and that kind of consumption data, 70% of the economy, or is it more on the business side? You know, Tom, I think it's both, but one problem we have is you don't want to focus too much on one data point. And and so let's take today, for example, 224,000, quite a strong number. But if you look at a three-month average, we're running at about 171,000 for overall payrolls. For private sector payrolls, yep. Dr. Furman just mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yep. So go back to January of this year, those three-month averages were 245 and two. 40 respectively. So so if we're looking at trends, there's a clear slowing trend. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're headed off of a cliff, but slowdowns by definition must precede recession. So the Fed should be a bit more alert here. Um, You've mentioned Vice Chair Clarida. He watches inflation expectations very carefully, and we've had a pretty significant pullback in bond market inflation expectations. That alone, in in my book, would justify the Fed. Well, 
But this is important, Michael. We've got service sector inflation three-ish. We've got goods inflation near deflation. Do you see evidence yet, given all of the trade and manufacturing and slowdown in that, do you see evidence yet that we are importing disinflation and deflation from abroad or from the U.S. goods sector over to that core service sector inflation? Well, keep in mind that the core service sector inflation uh, is sticky price inflation. It will tend to lag the business cycle. So I'm afraid what's happening here is forward-looking bond markets are anticipating a slowdown in aggregate demand. So nominal GDP growth, which ran up to the high end of the recovery range last year, is already slowing and is likely to continue to slow. So really, if we're going to be importing disinflation, I think we're importing it from simply a slowdown in aggregate demand, just the ASAD model, Tom. Yeah, well, the ASAD model is one model to be used, but can these models be efficacious for a Fed? I mean, have they gone beyond beyond any kind of traditional econ 101 analysis to where they literally have to make it up as they go based on leading data? I think that the Fed's in a position now where they're they're going to be forced to take a bit of a leap of faith um, in the forward-looking indicators in order to avoid the risk of a downturn and a repeat of the zero lower bound scenario. If they're not willing to do that, then, you know, it's more likely this business cycle comes to an end. And when the Fed does get around to easing, they're going to have to do a lot more of it. And so let's try to avoid that eventuality if we can. But that means that you don't play this in a totally conventional way, fixated on coincident and lagging information. That's a good way to be constantly behind the curve. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Darter, Real Clinic there, folks, MKM Partners. The Trump administration's views on the jobs report. I'm pleased to say we're joined now on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio by Larry Cudlow, National Economic Council Director. Great to see you, as always, Larry. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Really, really strong job numbers, a really nice bounce back from the month of May. Do you think we're overestimating some of the weakness that some people think will come through 2019 and into 2020? Well, I don't know why. You know, there's always this chorus of people that want to be pessimistic. I would simply say that the big numbers today, 224,000, good wage increases still above 3%, low unemployment rate. We are still in a very strong prosperity cycle. It's a growth cycle. It's a prosperity cycle. Here, uh, July 4th, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Things are looking pretty good. Uh, I can't explain the chronic pessimism. All I'll say is we have very good pro-growth policies, low taxes, deregulation, opening energy, trade reform. I think the incentives of our supply-side policies are working, and I don't know why people don't want to see that. I'm very optimistic, as you might guess. Larry, you haven't been afraid to wade in to the debate around the Federal Reserve. A lot of people asking the question, what does July 5th, the data today, mean for July 31st, the Federal Reserve meeting? What is the case for a rate cut after this labor market report, Larry? Well, look, I don't think, you know, here we go again. Um, I don't think there's a Phillips curve trade-off between strong jobs, for example, and uh, higher inflation and interest rates. I don't believe that. I think more people working and succeeding is fabulous. 
And I think the evidence shows that the inflation rate is rock bottom. You know, I was just looking at some of the market figures uh, on the way over here again. Not only do you have an inverted yield curve, which I think is somewhat troublesome uh, for the longer term, but the break-evens on the inflation, uh, you know, the tips break-evens, the five-year, Jonathan, is one and a half percent, and that's a CPI number. So the PCE deflator that the Fed uses would be about 30 basis points less than that. So you're one and a quarter percent inflation, which is way below the Fed's target and what most people want. And that's the reason I think they should take back the uh, interest rate hike. Now, I'm not encroaching on Fed independence. I'm actually just reading the market tea leaves, uh, if you ask me. The Fed will act in its own time. But I'm just saying, I think that's the case. And then I guess, secondly, with a weak global economy, uh, taking out an insurance policy is not a bad thing. So, Larry, I think the debate a lot of people are having is how lower weights will actually help, whether the price of credit is the problem in, say, the United States, whether the price of credit is the problem in Europe. And most people are answering no to that question. How will a lower rate actually help address some of the issues you outlined, Larry? Well, look, I just don't want anything to interfere with this strong prosperity cycle. That's my principal point. And I think as market signals have been suggesting for quite some time, the, the interest rate story is a, it looks unbalanced. I mean, Anytime. It's not that I'm going to inject stimulus here. I'm not really looking at that old model. I'm just saying that when 10-year Treasury paper is trading well below the Fed funds rate or the three-month Treasury bill rate, uh, I think that's a message to the Fed that their target rate is, is too high, frankly. And I think they're looking at that. I'm not sure that our views are much different than the Fed's views. I don't know when they'll act. They're an independent agency. But that, that's my basic point. This is not so much about stimulus as putting more balance into the financial sector and the yield curve. Larry, let's talk about trade, shall we? There's some talk, some reports that we might get face-to-face -face meetings sometime soon, perhaps even next week. Can you talk to me about that? Could they begin next week, the face-to-face -face talks between the United States and China? Well, I can't confirm the face-to-face -face next week. Uh, I know there are discussions ongoing that will get the two teams together at some point in the near future. Uh, what I want to say is um, they're on the phone the leaders, the senior people on both sides, Liu Hei from China, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, Secretary uh, Mnuchin for the USA. They'll be on the phone. They've been on the phone. They'll be on the phone this coming week. Uh, I think a face-to-face meeting is in the cards. I don't want to get ahead of that story. But I, I think it's a positive story. Um, as you know, last week or two weekends ago, the president um, basically reopened the talks. I think it's always better to talk than not to talk. Let's talk about the content of those talks. Do we restart from fresh? Secretary Mnuchin said we were 90% of the way there. We were 90% of the way there. And I'm wondering if that's the starting position or whether we start again, Larry. Which one is it? Well, I know that the U.S. team uh, much, much favors uh, where we left off last May. Now, again, I, I don't want to get engaged in a lot of hypotheticals here, but I think what Steve Mnuchin is saying and I think Bob Lighthizer agrees. I know I certainly do. We made a lot of headway. Then the talks uh, stopped in May, as you know, and now they're going to resume. So why not start from where we left off? We didn't have a deal, but we made progress on a lot of fronts. Now, I want to reiterate something because there's always things in the newspapers and on the media and whatnot. Let's not forget the basics here 
with respect to ending intellectual property theft, forced transfer of technology, various cyber hacking and cyber interference issues, uh, tariff and non-tariff barriers, uh, unbalanced uh, trade conditions in general, and of course, perhaps the most important one is the enforcement mechanisms. Now, having said that, Jonathan, the U.S. side believes we did make headway, and that's exactly where we should pick up the story. The president indicated as much uh, at the G20 talks in Osaka. So that's our view, basically. Let's try to cross the finish line, but it's still going to be difficult, no question. Well, let's talk about some of those difficulties. The president has allowed Huawei to start buying technology from U.S. firms once again, suspended another round of tariffs perhaps as well. What did the president get in return this last weekend, Larry? Well, look... Um, the talks have been reopened, and there is the expectation that China, almost in good faith, but I hope as a matter of continuing policy, will continue or will pick up the purchases of U.S., various U.S. imported goods and services, most particularly the agriculture and farming sector. Uh, we think that's actually um, part of the goodwill agreement, in return for which, as you noted, uh, the president said uh, we will suspend tariff increases uh, from this point on. But look, it's not so much tit for tat. You didn't get any new deals coming out of Osaka. What you got was a continuation of the talks, which is a good thing. And let's see if we can make any forward progress on where we left off last May. There are never any preconditions. The United States has never suggested any preconditions for this. But I think the relaxation of the, uh, of the tariff threat is, is a positive goodwill gesture. Larry, you've said in the past that the Huawei issue is separate from the trade negotiations. It looks like it's part of the broader trade negotiations now. Can you confirm that? Well, actually, I've never said uh, that they were separate. Um, Maybe somebody else did. That's not my view. The president's view, which is what matters, is that they will be part of the general talks regarding trade. And I think that's quite evident from what happened in Osaka. And again, if there's any confusion, Jonathan, let me try to clear up. With, respect, with respect to, um, shall we say, a little, um, a little more lenient treatment of Huawei, we're not talking about family jewels. We're not talking about 5G. We're not talking about core issues with respect to telecom and so forth. We're talking about what I've called general merchandise. The Commerce Department may decide to grant some additional licensing for telecom products that are the low tech and are readily available around the world, Jonathan. I hope I, I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. Stuff that could be bought in Asia, for example, uh, that will probably be relaxed. But Huawei remains on the entity list. We remain very concerned that Huawei's relationship with the Chinese government uh, may be a difficult problem, sensitive issues for national security. We will not open licenses for any national security uh, areas, uh, be they chips or whatever. We're just looking at stuff that's readily available on world markets and does not have any national security inferences. But, Larry, this gets a little bit complex because from a foreign diplomacy point of view, how could the United States have any diplomatic influence on foreign governments and their interaction with the likes of Huawei when the United States puts Huawei as part of a broader bilateral trade negotiation? That gets a little bit complex, doesn't it? 
Well, I'm not sure, Jonathan, where you're going on that one. I mean, remember, we are in very close touch with our allies, the Five Eyes, uh, Germany, France, regarding the Huawei problem. I mean, the national security-related issues are enormous in the U.S., in Asia, and in Europe. And all these governments, and we're in touch with them, you know, Secretary Pompeo, uh, John Bolton, and many others, including myself, we're in touch with these nations to talk about the Huawei threat to our security. So this is part of the overall diplomacy. I don't think it's a break in diplomacy. And we're all working towards the same end, which is a safe and secure uh, alliance to make sure that um, Chinese inroads into our security are prevented, frankly. Final question for you, Larry, just on the timeline. Are you comfortable with these negotiations running into 2020 and an election year, or do you need to get this addressed in the back half of this year? Well, look, there's no timeline. We've said this again and again. I've said it on your show and others, I'm trying to clarify. Uh, the president wants a quality deal. He said this in Osaka, and he's many times before Osaka. We want to resolve the sticky issues. We want to resolve the security issues. We want to resolve the trade issues. This is, of course, crucial to the economy of the U.S., to manufacturing, to farming, to technology, you name it. So there's no timeline. The issue is we want quality. We don't have to have speed. And frankly, I don't think that's linked to the uh, uh, elections in 2020. I think that's a matter of U.S. economic trade and national security policy. We will only sign on to a deal that is in the interest of the United States. Uh, as President uh, Trump has often said, it has to be a great deal. Larry, great to catch up with you. I hope you're well. And it's good to see you back in front of the camera with us. Larry Kudlow there, the National Economic Council Director, joining us from Washington. Simon Kennedy has done extraordinary duty for Bloomberg News over the last number of years, leading our Brexit coverage, leading all of our economic coverage as well, and drives forward the gossip of the IMF wrapped a little bit around the realities. Simon, your important story moments ago that Governor Carney is vetted with Irish and British passports to be a European at the IMF, that is the tradition, Michael Kedmezus and others, over the years. Great. What is the likelihood of managing Director Kearney? He's actively being discussed in European capitals. Uh, he's obviously been a, a, a subject of speculation, both on Bloomberg stories and elsewhere this week. But I yeah. think we moved the story, we advanced the story a bit forward today uh, in saying that he's, his name is actively being discussed. There are conversations within European capitals. Right. <clears throat> Um, about Mark Carney, uh, and even there's a chance that there could be a, a meeting right. of finance ministers next week, uh, which a single nominee could uh, could come back uh, could come out of Europe. He may be challenged by emerging markets. He may even be challenged by uh, by other uh, European candidates. But it is interesting that given he is not a European by birth, that uh, European governments are still willing yeah. to uh, to discuss his candidacy. Simon, you and I have sat in the bar of the St Regis Hotel and wait for the white <laughs> smoke to rise out of the IMF headquarters in uh, Washington. How do they actually pick 
a replacement to Madame Lagarde? How do they, what's the process? So the process is there's an official process. The uh, 24 member executive board of the IMF uh, receives nominations and then uh, um, uh, picks a winning candidate. But uh, of course, you can't get past the politics, you can't get past uh, yeah. uh, nationalities. There is a uh, tradition um, that the IMF job is picked by the European governments and that the World Bank presidency is picked by. Uh, uh, the U.S. administration, um, every time the job came up, just as it did with David Malpass at the World Bank a few months ago, there's a debate about whether it should be opened up, uh, and every time uh, the status quo is, is maintained. So, uh, um, of course, emerging markets. Emerging markets in the past have, um, have pushed for uh, pushed candidates on the basis of, uh, of the increased heft that uh, the likes of China, India, etc., play in the world economy. They've never actually coalesced really behind a single candidate, though, and they can be outvoted by the U.S. and the Europeans on the uh, on the executive board. But uh, again, we may see some European, uh, sorry, some emerging market candidates come forward, uh, and then the test will be if other if all the emerging markets can kind of line up behind one, and that would be a, a greater test. So, Simon, what do you think the whoever is the next head of the IMF? What is number one on the to-do list for that next head? Well, number one is, is, is playing a part potentially in shoring up the world economy. Uh, we're clearly slowing it. It's in the worst shape since uh, uh, just after the financial crisis about a decade ago. Um, and so be ensuring that the IMF uh, is, uh, has, a, has a place at the table should things uh, uh, start to, to go wrong. Um, incidentally, Mark Carney delivering a, a big speech this week on those risks um, and talking about the potential for a... Uh, uh, larger than uh, currently anticipated slowdown, pretty good job application in that speech. Uh, and so that would be their main uh, main role. But at the second time, they're looking, uh, Christine Lagarde will be leaving at the same time as uh, negotiations will be taking place over, uh, over a capital increase, right. uh, getting more money, more firepower for the IMF. It's been a bit quiet lately, which is a, it's always a good thing when the IMF's not in the headlines. Um, Argentina obviously getting the biggest uh, loan ever last year. But generally, the IMF has, uh, has had a quiet time, which uh, is no bad thing. Uh, and so the challenge really would be uh, maintaining yeah. stability in the world economy. Simon Kennedy, what does the first Lagarde press conference look like? Is Philip Lane sitting next to her, pushing her notes so she can act smart like you do with me? I don't think so. I think Christine Lagarde's a, a, a pretty, as, as Bloomberg, a Bloomberg Opinion writes today, uh, a pretty yeah. effective uh, leader. Um, she's had lots of big jobs in, in law and in uh, finance ministry in France at the IMF. Um, this is someone who you'll have seen her at press conferences and the like, who clearly is a, a master's her brief and yeah. knows what to, knows what to and, say. And to some extent, she could actually be just reading by then, reading from the Mario Draghi playbook. And that's not right. Uh, well, uh, that's not criticism of her. Whoever takes over from Mario Draghi will more likely than not inherit a playbook from yeah. Draghi that Draghi will have put in place in the final uh, months of his uh, of his presidency. That wasn't his intention, but the world economy might drive in that way. As Mr. Kennedy knows, there's an art to this and some of the humor <laughs> there of me saying Philip Lane, the esteemed Irish economist, as chief economist at uh, ECB would push her notes. Very often to any given question, particularly from Bloomberg News assembled in Frankfurt, Mario Draghi literally, Paul, reads off a statement. Yep. I mean, often. Not, sure. It's not an unusual event. Paul, uh, Simon, I've got to rip up the script and go to a 124.99 weaker pound sterling. Does sterling matter within the, the, the litmus paper of Prime Minister Johnson, Prime Minister Hunt, or is it a beast of its own? I think it's, I think they'll maintain. The Brits have always been pretty good on this, on maintaining a uh, 
uh, currency is set by markets. Um, obviously, uh, it's going to take some blows from Brexit. Uh, and, and incidentally, Mark, Mark Carney uh, and the Bank of England, perhaps more hawkish than the Fed and the, uh, the ECB, in maintaining uh, uh, some kind of support under, under the pound. Because I, you know, the, the free fall is becoming noticeable the last number of days. Can you give us a why? I mean, is it just political, the, the whole political stew of this government uh, race they're in? I don't know. I don't know if that's really taking, uh, taking yeah. uh, having an effect. There's certainly um, some t- the, you know, talk with the Bank of England. The Bank of England is, ha- is going to have to trim the, the hawkishness that's previously shown. Um, the data's not been great. There is this, yeah. all this concern about perhaps it's not the politics, um, but there's certainly the, uh, the concern that a no-deal Brexit is much greater. Yeah. Now you've got uh, Jeremy Hunt and you've got... Um, uh, Boris Johnson kind of trying, trying to prove their yeah. mettle uh, to the uh, to the Conservative Party that must elect them. Simon, thank you for the uh, uh, the time this morning on short notice. Simon Kennedy running all of our economics and putting out an important uh, report that brings forward Governor Carney perhaps as a managing director. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.